If I was to ask the person next to you, just give me a word to describe your family member or the person you're sitting next to, what would they say? Would they say, you know what? They're, they're gentle. They're just a gentle person. I have a question for you. How do you, how do you deal with power in your life? How do you deal with power? How do you deal with authority? For some of us, power and authority, I say us, but it's not really me, um, but for some of us, power and authority is like the ultimate narcotic. You know, it just we just get amped up. I'm saying not really me, but for some people, power and authority is just like that rush that you get. And when you find yourself in a position of power and a position of authority, you know, it just gives you that, that yeah, you know, I am the boss, I am in charge, and Sometimes when we have that power and we have that authority, we don't necessarily always use it very well, right? Sometimes when we find ourselves in positions of power, we, we use that power and that authority to kind of maneuver things so that we kind of stay in control and we can kind of keep life happening the way we want it and we can get other people to do the things that we want them to do so it makes our life better. Have you ever seen anybody use power and authority your life like that. Sometimes we get insecure, and when we're insecure, you know, we have a tendency to flex our muscles a little bit, you know, because that insecurity kind of, you know, I, what are people thinking about me? What are they saying about me? Are they moving behind my back? And so we flex our muscles to keep everybody in line. Sometimes when we have the upper hand with our family, we we hold it over them, you know, we have that power, that authority, and and and. And we do a lot of relationship maneuvering just so that we can keep it. What would power and authority look like if it was under the control of the Holy Spirit? I suggest that that is what gentleness is. That gentleness is power under control. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness. Jesus tells us this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. When we hear that word gentle, gentleness, sometimes we think or sometimes we assume that to be gentle means that you have to be weak. To be gentle, you have to be effeminate. Is that how you, how you say it? That you have to, you can't be masculine or you can't be strong and you have to be weak. But, but that's exactly opposite of what gentleness means. Gentleness actually means strength under control. It means strength under control. When you have strength, is your strength under control? When the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, does he take your strength and does he take your power and does he make it controlled or under the control of God? See, the problem is sometimes we like to show off a little bit. Have you guys ever seen those videos on Facebook or on on uh, YouTube where a guy will be at a stoplight, you know, he's driving like a Ford, you know, souped up Mustang or Corvette and you know, he's revving that engine and getting it going, just rah, 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 and you can hear the power just going. The light turns green, and he peels off. The next thing you know, he loses control of the car, and he wraps it around a tree. Have you ever seen that before? 
Actually, I found a picture online. Do you guys have that picture in our notes today? No? Oh, okay. Well, maybe you don't have that picture. That's okay. I thought I sent a picture of a, of a tree of this Mustang wrapped around, wrapped around a, a, a tree. And sometimes that's what our life looks like. When we allow our, our life, our strength, and our power to get out of control. But some of you think, well, Jerry, I really don't have a whole lot of power in my life. And what I want to suggest this morning is you probably have a lot more power than what you think you do. You probably do. And so what would it look like if we allowed the Holy Spirit to take control of our strength and take control of our power and to produce gentleness? How do we cultivate gentleness? Well, here's a few thoughts for you. If you can pull out your notes, you can follow along with me. The first thing is this. Gentleness, how do we cultivate gentleness? We do that by this. By only fighting battles worth fighting. That gentleness is cultivated when we only fight battles that are really worth fighting. Let's, let's confess or say, how many of you would be willing to admit that you like to look for a good fight from time to time? Anybody in here? You like it. You just gotta stir it up a little bit. Put up the dukes. You gotta have a little fight. And, and sometimes this really happens in our families. And you ever find yourself fighting with somebody in your family and you step back for a second and you think, this is really a ridiculous thing to be arguing about. How did we get to this place where we're fighting about the TV channel or we're fighting about dinner or we're fighting about dot, dot, dot? How did we get to this place? Our life gets all revved up about pointless stuff. See, gentleness... Gentleness, gentleness means we only, we only fight battles that are worth fighting. Solomon wrote it this way in Proverbs 20, verse 3. He says, avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. You might need to read that with me. Let's read it together. Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. Are there any fools around you this morning? <laughs> Avoiding a fight is a mark. He says this in Proverbs 19 and 11. He says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It's only, it, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. I put this little quote in your notes. Intelligence is walking away from a fight you can't win. Gentleness is walking away from ones you can win. My dentist in Oklahoma City, his name was Oral Miller. He's about 67, 68 years old, and he is, um, he is a serious dentist. I mean, we're talking serious stuff. Really just kind of a, I wouldn't say he's rough and tough. He's just kind of chiseled and just says what he means and means what he says, and he doesn't pull any punches. And he says the reason he's like this is because of the way he grew up. He grew up in Pennsylvania, and his dad was a miner. And his dad was a miner, and he said his dad really liked to kind of fight. He was just kind of a rough and tough guy. He was a boxer. You know, if you just picture, I don't know, when I see a miner, he's covered in grease and just dukes up, ready to, ready to give the blows, right? So Ermillo was telling me a, a, a story about his, um, his, his father was at a dance when he was in college, he was dancing with this girl, and this guy walked up to him and tapped him on the shoulder. And he said, that's my girl. You want to give her over, or do you want to fight? 
Neural says that his dad tells this story, and he said he turned around, and he looked the man up and down. He was about six foot six, and 230 pounds, solid rock. He said, here you go. <laughs> here you go. Now that's intelligence, right? That's intelligence. Seeing a fight that you can't win and saying, ah, here you go. It's just a dance. I'm not mixing it up for a dance. But gentleness is seeing a fight you can win and walking away anyways. There's a kid by the name of T.J. Carrero when he was 12 years old. He lived in Florida. This was a couple years ago. It's a fascinating story. Um, He set up a lemonade stand in his neighborhood. And um, his next-door neighbor was just one of those kind of old guys that, you know, didn't like little kids around the neighborhood messing with the stuff or whatever. And so he kind of got frustrated that this little kid had set up this his lemonade stand in front of his house, in front of the little kid's house, because it was causing the traffic to be backed up a little bit and people driving down the street. And he was like, you know, he was just one of those guys that we follow the rules, we're by the book. And so he got a little frustrated and he started writing letters to City Hall trying to get them to come out and to shut down this, uh, this lemonade stand. Um, he said it was an illegal franchise, right? And it was an illegal franchise, and it was creating traffic problems, and, and he moved there because he didn't want to mess with the traffic, and he just went on and on and on. He sent letter after letter after letter, and all these letters and all these complaints and all these old men you know, standing out in front of his yard saying, hey, this has got to stop. The neighbors just got frustrated with it. They got tired of it. And city, city council members got tired of dealing with this old man telling everybody that we needed to shut this illegal lemonade stand down. And so they pulled the neighborhood. They said, neighbors, how do you feel about this little kid running this? And now the neighbors had a problem with it. They thought it was a really cool idea. I mean, this little boy is being an entrepreneur. He's trying to raise money for, you know, to buy stuff. And, and so they're just like, yeah, we support this. We don't have a problem with it. Just, just go with it. So the city council went back to Doug and just said, Doug, you're the only person that has a problem with this. And so we're not going to shut it down. We're going to let it go. You're just going to have to get over it because it's not that big a deal. Well, the newspapers picked up on it. I don't know if it was all the letters or whatever, and so they ran this article about this little boy that had this lemonade stand, and it went crazy. This lemonade stand went viral. There were cars around the neighborhood, around the block, lined up just to get this boy's 50-cent glass of lemonade. And it all began because this old man was picking a fight. One of the neighbors found out this old man this Doug Wilkie, who was like 60, 63 years old, was, um, was also acting as a financial consultant. But he was doing it out of his house, which was illegal in the neighborhood. And so they wrote the city council and said, this guy who's complaining about this kid is doing the exact same thing. And so the city council came back and shut him down and charged him $250 a day until he got proper licensing to run his financial advisor business out of his home. And I say all that to say this. Sometimes we have to be careful of what fights you choose to fight because they can come back to bite you. And sometimes the things that we're fighting about aren't really that important. You see, gentleness, gentleness only fights battles that are truly worth fighting. And we overlook and we forgive those that aren't. Here's a second thought. Gentleness When you're put in a position to lead in life, gentleness means that you lead by inspiration, not intimidation. 
Gentleness means that you lead by inspiration, not intimidation. And this is what I want to, this is what you have to think about this morning is that all of us, in some way, some shape, some fashion, some form, have some sort of power and authority in our lives. Some of this morning are your, your parent that puts you in a position of power and authority, your grandparent, possibly, your, your teacher, um, you're a boss, um, you're, you're a supervisor, you're, 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 you're on a board at an organization, at the Y or wherever, and whatever you're doing or whoever's around you, you have some sort of power and, and, and authority in other people's lives. Some of you are just in places of authority in people's lives because other people look up to you. They see the life that you're living. They see the way you resonate Jesus. They see the type of decisions that you're making, the, sex, the success that you're having. They say, that guy, that lady, I, I want to be like them. And so they come to you for advice, and they ask you, you know, why did you make the decision? How do you do this? Can you speak into my life? And when, when you have that type of power, when you have that type of authority, there's a responsibility that comes with it. Peter was talking to the church in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, and he says, Care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Now read this next part with me. Don't lord it over people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying that God has put us in positions of power and authority and responsibility in people's lives. And, and when we're in those places, we don't flex our muscles. We don't push people around, but, but we take care of them and we lead them by being a godly example. Lynn Anderson wrote a book called They, they Smell Like Sheep. And it's a, it's a fascinating book about leadership. And he's, he's kind of aligning it along the ideas about shepherds and about how shepherds love and, and care for and and hug and are around sheep so often that they start smelling like sheep, right? In his book, he talks about a tour that his wife, he and his wife went on to Israel. And his wife's name is Caroline. And they were in a, they were in a tour bus and they were just driving through, you know, different parts of the city. And this, this tour guide was saying, this is where this happened and this is where this happened. And they were driving through this countryside and, um, and he started this amazing story where he started to talk about shepherds. They're going through this rolling hillside, and there's green, and there's shepherds all around. And, and, he's, and he, starts, he starts kind of relaying shepherds to God. And he says, shepherds, man, shepherds, they, they protect their sheep. And they're literally willing to put their lives on the line to fight the wolves. He says if a shepherd, um, if a sheep was hurt, you know, a shepherd would pick it up, and, and they'd put it over their shoulder, and they would carry it to the next destination you know, tending its wounds and, and basically babying it until, until they arrived. He said their shepherds are, are, are tender and they're, they're loving and, and they're caring. And, and, and they don't drive sheep. They don't, you know, yell at them and beat them, but, but they lead them. And, and sheep love them so much that, and they trust them so much that, that all they have to do is just hear their shepherd's voice and they'll, and they'll follow them anywhere. And he's telling this beautiful story. And he got to the end of it, and the tour guide started laughing. He just did a little chuckle. <laughs> he says, you know what, I just got to stop the bus. I just got to tell you what happened last year when I was taking a tour through this, this same area, telling the same 
story. He said, I was right in the middle, right at the most beautiful part of this story, you know, talking about how shepherds love their sheep and the sheep just follow the shepherds and trust them and they'll do anything they tell them to do because they hear their voice. And he said, I, I, I kind of start getting this idea that I've, I've lost my audience. And so I turn around and all of my audience is, everybody, person in the bus, bus is staring out the window. He said, their eyes are the size of saucers. I mean, they're just like bugged out and they're just like, their mouth is dropped open like, what is going on? And he looks outside and he sees this man with a stick in the midst of all these sheep and he's just beating them left and right trying to get them to go where he wants them to go. And he has this dog and they're not listening. They're just scattering everywhere. And he has this dog that he's basically sicking on these sheep. I mean, the dog is just being ruthless, just grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and throwing them left and right. And he said, I'm watching this. I'm telling this beautiful story, this amazing story about shepherds loving and being tender and caring. And, and this guy, this maniac out in the, out in the field is just like completely destroying everything I said. And he says, so I lost it. He said, I got to do something. And so he said, I parked the bus and I ran outside and I stood in front of the guy out in the middle of this field and I said, he said, what are you doing? You're blowing everything I'm saying. You're a shepherd. You're not supposed to treat sheep this way. You're not supposed to do this kind of stuff. You're kicking them and you're hitting them and you're sicking your dog. Have you lost your mind? Like I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a shepherd. I just bought this, these sheep. I'm a butcher. (laughs) He's like, oh, well, that makes sense. Butchers treat sheep differently than shepherds do. And the question that I have for you this morning is that when you have an opportunity to be a shepherd in someone's life, when you're given a position of power and authority, are you a shepherd or are you a butcher? See, one day, we're going to have to stand before God. We're going to have to give it account for our lives. You see, I believe that we're not only going to have to give an account for all the do's and don'ts and all that stuff. And by the grace of God and mercy of Jesus, those things will be covered. But we'll also have to give an account for how we treated people. We're going to have to give an account for how we treated those people that God entrusted to us to lead and care for And the question that I have is, do you lead them well? Do you lead them through intimidation or by inspiration? Do you lead them like Jesus? Here's a third thought. If you want gentleness to be cultivated in your life, then do this. Protect the dignity of others. Protect the dignity of the people in your life. And here's the thing, is this dignity issue, this protecting, this pertains to all of us. Do you realize that the people that are, around, that are sitting around you, the people that you work with, the people that you teach, the students that you go to school with, the people that you manage at work, that every single one of those people were created in the image of God, and because they were created in the image of God, they deserve and they have Great worth. 
And it's our responsibility to treat them with honor and dignity. So how do we do that? How do we protect the dignity of other people? We confront them privately. We confront others. You want to protect their dignity, then you confront them privately. Don't you hate it when you get called out in public? Has it ever happened to you before? Maybe just not in public, but maybe in front of some peers. Maybe at work, having a meeting. Your boss calls you out in front of everybody around you. That, that doesn't feel good. No one, no one likes that. And sometimes we're guilty of that, not only in our work setting, but sometimes we're guilty of that in our, in our family setting. As parents, as teachers, sometimes we call out our kids in front of their friends. And, and that's not uplifting, and that's not dignifying. That's not protecting their dignity. My first youth ministry trip, when I was a youth pastor in Phoenix, I took a group of kids to uh, Houston, Texas, to work at a really, really small um, Christian college called Bay Ridge Christian College. And uh, we drove a bus from Phoenix to Houston in a day. If you can imagine 50 people in a, 50, in a 55 passenger bus all day long, the types of just annoying moments and smells that are coming out of junior high and high school students should make you cringe, right? So we're going through this all day long, and there's a couple boys who are sitting behind me. They were in the ninth grade, and they were ninth graders to the core, Jarosh and Nick, driving me crazy. This is day one of our trip. Now I'm already frustrated out of my mind with these two boys. And we have seven more to go. I'm just like, if they survive, this will be a miracle. I might just kill both of them, throw them in the ocean. Nobody will ever miss them, right? Their parents don't even like them half the time. They're junior, I mean, they're ninth graders. At least that's the way I was thinking. It was a rough day. We get to the, uh, to the college like at 1030 at night. I mean, we started really early in the morning. And uh, we had this little family meeting. I threw some food out on the table. So we didn't have a chance to get a good dinner. This is not a good dinner. Here's some snacks. We want you to eat it, and you're going to bed, right? Got a long week in front of us. We're in this meeting, and these two boys, I, I, I tell all the students, you know, it's time to throw everything away, put it in the trash can, and uh, we, we got stuff to do. We got to get ready for bed. And these two boys are just, the whole time I'm talking and having this meeting, with them, they're just yapping back and forth. And they have all these wrappers and napkins. They're about, you know, me to kin from, from me, and they're throwing napkins at each other, not even trying, acting like they're paying attention. And I guess there was this like this little meter going on side of me, this little agitation thing that was just going higher and higher and higher. And at some point it just snapped. And I took my hand, the palm of my hand, and I slapped it on the table right in front of them. And I looked at them and I said, Nick and Josh, I'm sick and tired of you guys acting like these little kids. You're on this trip and you're with high school students and you're going to act like high school students. And if you're not, man, this is going to be a terrible week for you. You need to grow up. What a way to kick off a week missions trip, right? <laughs> this is a missions trip. We're trying to act and serve like Jesus. And my hand is hurting, you know, because I slapped the table and my face is beat red. Have I ever acted like that? I don't know what happened to me. Just like maybe my dad came out for a moment. It's so a dad move, you know, and I just in their faces. And I pulled back and I looked around the room and there were just horrified looks all around, eyes big, mouths dropped. And these two junior high boys are like, what just happened? And instantly, I knew I broke their spirit. And not in a good way. I called them out in front of their peers. 
I'd belittle them and told them they were acting like little kids. I, I treated them the way people who aren't supposed to be pastors and leaders and encouragers and act like Jesus treated them in their lives. So I dismissed all the kids. I asked Josh and Nick to sit there. This was after one of my leaders came up to me and just said, you need to fix this tonight. And um, so I sat down next to him. And I just said, guys, I'm so sorry. I should never have done that in front of your friends. You guys know you're acting wrong, right? Oh, yeah, we're really sorry. I said, it doesn't matter. You know, next time you guys act out, and you probably will at some point this week, I'm committing to you that I'll pull you aside, and I'll do it the right way. Because this was, this was wrong, and I know I broke your spirit. And I, I apologize. They put their arms around me. It was like, Jared, it's okay. We still love you. You know how ninth graders, they're really gracious, you know. We, we still love you. It's okay. We were acting like jerks. We're really sorry. And that night, I, I sat in front of my kids. This was the very first mission trip. I, I've only been their youth pastor for like a month, right? <laughs> and I sat in front of 50 teenagers and adults, and I just apologized. And I poured out, and I asked for forgiveness. And I said, I promise, I won't treat you guys like that ever again. It was a mistake. I acted the way I shouldn't have. And, um, and I commit not to do that again. I'm truly, truly sorry. And kid after kid, all week long, came up to me. And they said, you know, Jared, there aren't very many adults in our lives that have ever apologized to us. And we accept your apology. And we appreciate the example you set for us. You see, when you confront somebody to really show them dignity and the honor they deserve, you need to do it privately. You praise publicly, but you confront privately. And it goes for your kids, it goes for your spouses, your team members, whoever you've been given a position of authority in your life. You confront privately and praise publicly. Here's a second thought. You want to protect the dignity of people in your life? Then correct others graciously. How many of you have ever been wrong before? Raise your hand. Now, I see a few men that haven't raised their hands, so wives, I appreciate you can give them one of these if you need to. Some of us have a hard time admitting that from time to time. And the question I have for you is, how do you like to be treated when you are wrong? How do you like to be corrected when you make a mistake? Here's the deal. We live in a fallen world, and people are going to mess up around you. And when they do, I hope you correct them graciously. For some reason, there's a small group of people in this world who really find joy in correcting other people. But that doesn't bring dignity to other people's lives. And so correct people graciously. Here's a third thought about protecting the dignity of others. Assist other people willingly. Every once in a while, you're going to have someone come up to you that needs help. And I don't know if you've ever asked asked help before, but it's hard. It's hard for some of us. And truly, I think it's hard for everybody. I think sometimes asking for help can make people feel ashamed. Maybe they have to admit that they can't handle it, that they couldn't figure it out, that they couldn't correct it on their own. And there's like a shaming factor to asking for help, and it doesn't feel good at all. And when someone, when someone asks for help, we hold their dignity in our hands. And how we respond to them can help them feel loved, can help them feel valued, can help them feel cherished, or we can increase their level of worthlessness that they already feel. We can make them feel valuable 
like a human being, or we can make them feel like trash. Assist others willingly and graciously and affirmingly. Ann Landers said this once, the true measure of an individual is how he treats a person who can do him absolutely no good. That's the true measure of a person. How they treat people that can, that can do them no good. And here's the last thought. If you want gentleness to be cultivated in your life, then never withhold forgiveness or love. I think I have a video. Did I send you the video? There's a video I, w- I want you to show. Maybe you've recognized it. It's the one with the skier. Do you have that one? Can you throw that up there real quick? Anybody recognize this video? He's inexperienced. He fell on his first jump. A lot of speed in that track. How many of you recognize that video? Seen it on TV a time or two? The wild world of sports. You know how it goes? It's the intro going on, and he says, he says, this is the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And as soon as they show that, they show that clip of a gentleman by the name of Victor Bogota. And they show it 130 times a year to millions of people across the United States in the wild world of sports. How many of you would like to mess up and have it played 130 times a year for millions of people to see? Anybody? Not me. No way. We don't want people to know. We don't want people to see. We don't want people to... To, to, to be able to glory in our failure. Here's the thing. When any of us fail greatly, the last thing in the world is, is that we want is to be reminded of it. Right? We don't want to be reminded of it. When someone fails us, when someone falls short, we hold in our hands this power to either restore them or hold it over their heads and play it over and over and over again. And I am so thankful that the Bible says that when I confess my sins to God, He not only forgives me, but He takes those sins and He throws it, and the Scripture says, into a sea of forgetfulness. That He remembers it no more. Maybe we should be that way. Colossians 3, 13 and 14 says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive. Say this with me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. What if we forgive people the way God forgave us? You want to live a gentle life? If you want to cultivate the spirit of gentleness in your life, then never withhold forgiveness or love. I want to read you a story that was written by uh, Barry Powell, and I think it kind of sums up everything that I shared today really well. Barry Powell Prowl is a writer out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And this, this article, this story is called The Mark of a Champion. He says, The group of 25 men and escorts moved rather slowly. This was to be expected because there were only 23 legs and 49 arms among us. It was December of 1971, and we were in Las Vegas, guests of Caesar's Palace for four days. 
The New York Amputee Chapter of Disabled American Veterans had arranged the trip. Normally, the men were patients of military hospitals in Pennsylvania and Maryland. One evening, we went to see the, comedi- the comedian Buddy Hackett. We stayed on after the crowd was ushered out of the showroom, and we sat waiting for Buddy Hackett to come out and meet us personally. Since I was one of the few who actually had two legs, I usually rose from the table and greeted the entertainer and then introduced them to everyone. The entertainers were most gracious to us and seemed genuinely happy to meet us. As I was sitting at the table, I noticed a showroom manager approaching with a black man in the 60s whom I did not recognize. I stood up and the showroom manager explained that someone wanted to meet us. He said, gentlemen, this is Joe Lewis, former heavyweight champion of the world. Joe Lewis had already retired by the time I was a toddler but was often a guest on the old Friday night fights that my grandfather used to watch. I was never much of a boxing fan, but I certainly knew Joe Lewis defended his... I never was a boxing fan, but I certainly knew Joe Lewis defended his title an unequaled 25 times during his career. I pictured him as a man of few emotions and steel nerves. Joe Lewis walked up to me and began to raise my hand to greet him. I never got more than halfway up. He quickened his pace and threw his arms around me and held me in a bear hug. He held me like a father holds a long-lost son. He held me for what seemed like forever. And believe me, when Joe Lewis gives you a bear hug, you begin to feel that maybe your chances are better with a real bear. When he released me, I looked into his eyes expecting to see something like raw determination or pride or some other macho manifestation. Instead, in his eyes, I saw rivers of tears flowing from wells of love and compassion. I don't remember us saying a word to each other, but I remember the feeling. The feeling was that this man's heart was open and he loved and he felt for all of us. He then moved around the table, hugging all of the men. I reflected on what had just happened and learned a lesson in life that remains with me still. Listen to this. In a humble, loving heart, there is more strength than steel nerves and a fast punch. The measure of a champion is not how many people he knocked down. It is how many he lifted up. I want to repeat that again. The measure of a champion is not how many people he knocked down, it's how many he's lifted up. Paul says this, when the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, this is what comes out. Power and strength under control. Gentleness. My question I have for you today is, is it that way for you? Is gentleness a part of your spirit? Is that what pours out of your life? 